promises deliverance. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians sold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his hand. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. So this message is uh, titled The Gospel According to Exodus. And the reason it's done so is because you're familiar of the gospel according to St. Matthew and the gospel according to St. Mark and Luke and John and and but the the gospel is not just found in the gospels themselves. Uh, if you have been at our church for any length of time, you may have heard of a series that we did years ago, back in 2012. So long ago it seems. Christ in the Old Testament, and in that series we focused on primarily one aspect of looking at the types and shadows, mostly with people, but occasionally with events of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to adopt that exact same style or hermeneutic, if you will, and we're going to read this passage and dissect it as it speaks to what Jesus has done concerning sin and death. And so this passage speaks of a covenant God who acts in time and in space And uh, he acts in such a way as to bring to pass that which he prophesied uh, beforehand. And so we're going to look at all of those aspects today. Uh, We're going to look first of all at uh, the the section which comes before this passage, the context for this covenant. Um, We're going to look at God's victory over evil as a totalizing victory. 
Uh, in this victory, he prophesied about it beforehand and also calls us uh, to, to acknowledge it in such a way as we see God before, in the midst of, and after wielding authority, wielding power, bringing about time-space events in order to cause wh- that which he has uh, prophesied beforehand, that which he has seen beforehand, to come to pass. So God's knowledge concerning what's going to happen is not only something that he sees and allows other people to do in order to bring about, but that which he sees wishes to cause to come about and causes himself. He acts in such a way as to bring about that which he has prophesied or seen beforehand. And so here we're going to look at God's victory as a totalizing victory in that it it wasn't just prophesied and then God happened to be right. He prophesied, declared something to be the case, and then worked to rot the victory. We're going to look at the grace of deliverance. That is, it is actually God's grace to bring Israel out of Egypt. Many people who uh, may have adopted uh, what you might call hyper-dispensational theology, which basically means that God acts in different ways or makes covenants with distinct features at certain times, and those are completely different from either now or other times. And, And this idea is that God has set up an age of innocence by which Adam and Eve knew God in a special relationship. And after that came the age of man, and then there was the age of Moses or the covenant of Moses. And now we're living in the spirit age or the covenant of grace. And I I just want to say that although that may be a helpful distinction to organize a timeline, it doesn't understand the way that God relates to all men everywhere by which he prophesies and preaches to them the gospel, which always is according to faith. It is not the case that anyone has ever been saved by doing the works of the law, as the New Testament plainly teaches. And in the what so-called covenant of law, uh, people were not saved by doing the law. Likewise, today, people are not saved by doing the law, uh, as if there ever could have been someone who's saved by the law. But rather, every single action of God is grace to his creation. Existence is grace. Giving of deliverance is grace. Giving of law is grace. And we're going to see, hopefully, hopefully that makes sense to you if you were at the Sunday school hour. Um, we're going to look at how even before the law comes, God bestows grace upon Israel. And so the law has to be understood in the context of a foundation of grace and covenant. We're going to look at how we need God to open our ears. Something that happens here in this passage, we see a very small glimpse of it, but the people are so uh, dismayed. They're, they're so downcast that they can't even believe what they're hearing. That which they're groaning for and crying out for is coming to pass, and they have no capacity to receive it. This is a moral capacity. It's not an intellectual capacity. And then finally, we're going to look at this entire message as a metaphor or a symbol, a type of water baptism. There are many people who are seeking baptism uh, in our church, and we're going to do, there will be a few dedicated teachings for you, but, but understand that baptism isn't some secondary thing to following Jesus Christ. It, it is integral to your pursuit of Jesus as a disciple. And we're going to see how this plays, uh, plays out in the narrative today. So first of all, before we get to Exodus 6, this is not the beginning of the chapter or book of Exodus, but it's also not the beginning of the story of God's covenant with man. We know that God created the earth in six days. He established Adam and Eve as a perfect couple in the garden. Those two sinned, Adam rebelled, 
having been deceived by Eve, who was deceived by the serpent, and they caused all of the earth to come under a curse, which God puts it under for a special time. And when you hear about that, you're instantly thinking, well, okay, how did the serpent get there? Who, you know, what happened before that? Well, the scripture doesn't tell us explicitly. And so we come to acknowledge what we might call the problem of evil. And when you, when you talk to people who maybe haven't grown up in church or even have grown up in church, there is a primal doubt that, that every man has concerning this problem of evil. Where did evil come from? And we have to understand that when we say that God is sovereign over all events, we do not imply that God is guilty for all things. You can be a king over a land, and yet you can have rebellious subjects. And those rebellious subjects may be operating contrary to the laws and the statutes of the kingdom, yet the king is not deposed, right? Likewise, we understand God in his sovereignty permits things to exist in such a way as to not be directly culpable, that is, God is not the author of evil, but at the same time, God is sovereign and wishes for it to exist, permits it to exist for a purpose. Now, all that's required of us to deal with the problem of evil is not to come up with a full explanation. You do not need to believe uh, a set of codified principles in order to fully deal with this problem of evil. You just need to allow yourself to say that this problem is not necessarily solvable by me, a limited human with limited moral capacity, limited intellectual reasoning capacity. You, you must simply allow God to demonstrate that he has a morally sufficient reason for doing so. That's all that's needed to overcome the problem of evil. And the question that the problem of evil poses is how could God, if he is good and powerful, permit evil to exist, right? If God is good, then why is he letting evil? Or perhaps God is good, but he's not powerful enough to stop it. Both of these are two bad directions to solve the problem. The right way to solve the problem is to examine the scriptures. Admittedly, this is a very poignant question. It's a very important question. Not dealing with this question is to leave a significant area of your life open to doubt and accusation of the enemy in the future. You should shore up your foundation as a Christian in understanding how do you answer this problem. This is extremely important, especially for those who are getting ready to share the gospel, because this is the most common objection to the existence of God by those who have not been raised in a Judeo-Christian worldview or in a Christian home. Their most common objection is, how could God, if he is good and powerful, permit evil to exist? And what we have to do is we have to say that we, like the the, the uh, writer uh, of particular passage of scripture, we've not considered things that are too difficult for us. It is not in your ability to answer this problem. That being said, we must never presume to question God so as to make him submit under our microscope. The minute you do that, you've, you've established a moral hierarchy, a moral code that is greater than God's. Because what you're saying is if God doesn't fit into my understanding of him, then he must not be God. He's not worthy to be worshipped as such. I've seen, and may this never happen among us, I've seen people say, well, if God's like that, I'd, he, he deserves to be rebelled against. And that's the ultimate sign of a heart that is fundamentally in rebellion against God, is to not receive him as he is, to, to say that my decision of 
how God should be is, is right. And if God's not this way, then he either doesn't exist or is not God or is not worthy to be worshipped. In searching out these questions, we never presume to subject God to our standard of morality. The reason why is because if you examine your own life, you have a standard which you yourself do not keep. And in, in coming to that realization, you must see that you as a human being who is flawed and if you took true account of your own life is in such a state of hypocrisy that you are not fit to judge. So, we must come to the scriptures to see glimpses of how God answers this question. Again, he does not come out and say, here's why I permit evil. He doesn't use those words. He doesn't, you can't just go to logic chapter 2, verse 15 and see, and God thus said, this is why I permit evil, and here's the difference between these theological terms. Biblical theology is explained through narrative and through story, and by narrative we don't mean fable, Maybe you've heard of Aesop's fables. Aesop's fables, they're, they're mythical stories, they're, they're fictional stories. By saying narrative, we are mainly, uh, merely saying that there were historic events, and God not only acted in those historic events in such a way as to bring about an intended purpose, but he also caused by his spirit some writer, whether a prophet, an apostle, a patriarch, some writer to write down the events in such a way as those that narrative authentically tells what God was trying to do through the events themselves. And so, biblical theology is narrative. It's, it's laid out in a story. It's laid out in a description of an event. And that theology, that narrative, must inform how we answer these sorts of problems. And we can see glimpses of God's answer to the problem of evil in various chapters, but I think most succinctly here in Exodus chapter 6. I think this is one of the most clear places where we can begin to see the, the reason why God permits evil to exist. And, and here we're going to see it in his relationship with Israel. So before Israel goes down into Egypt, God tells Abram exactly what's going to take place. Now, I don't know about you, I've made plans in my life, and most of those plans have never come to pass. I make plans every time I make a to-do list. And let me just suggest that if you always do your to-do if you get everything done on your to-do list, you can come to my house this week and disciple me. And, how, and if you don't ever make a to-do list, that's not a sufficient answer. Um, but, but I make plans and never get everything done that I plan to. You probably do the same thing if you've ever thought, oh, well, this year I'm going to turn over a new leaf, I'll exercise, and I'll read 50 books a year. And I actually set a goal this year to read 50. Guess how many I've read? Six. <laughs> hey, that's one a month. I've, you know, July's not done yet. So, But the point is that God tells Abram a plan. And that plan is explicitly detailed for not only a duration of time, but also a place and a group of people. And he not only is writing this plan and telling Abraham this plan, and he also is one to cause it to, to come to pass. We look at Genesis 15, 12 through 14. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Students of the book of Genesis, where have we seen a deep sleep happen before? With Adam. We talked about this last week. Adam goes into a deep sleep. Why? So that God would be able to take from Adam a rib that rib will now be fashioned into Eve. This is a way that the, the gospel or the 
Pentateuch writer Moses is crafting this narrative. He's explaining what happens, and he's giving us a little hint. This is God beginning to make a bride for himself. Adam goes on, or sorry, Abram goes into a deep sleep, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Isn't this wonderful? This, this to me sounds like a great devotional time. <laughs> darkness and a great dread. 13, then the Lord, that whenever you see capital L-O-R-D, it means Yahweh. So when we sing songs about Yahweh, that's all we mean is the name that God has declared by himself to the people of Israel, that that very same name which describes him as eternally existent, the one who is his own cause. Yahweh said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, okay, again, I make a to-do list for today, and that to-do list never gets done. Yahweh is telling Abraham, there are going to be these people who are going to be your offspring. Guess what? At this point in the promises that God is giving to Abraham, he doesn't have any offspring. Remember, this is the same chapter which God is making covenant with him. Remember, your offspring will be sojourners, verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Now, this means a number of things, that Abraham will have offspring, a doubtful proposition because his wife is barren. Not only that, they will become a people with an identity, such to be known as your offspring, and a a community which will be subjected. They will go to a land, a place, and a time for 400 years. And not only that, these people who they serve will exist, and they will exist for 400 years. The amount of evidence needed to, to redeem this promise or to fulfill this promise is quite high. This is a promise that God is saying, your people will become a small nation, and they will serve a greater people, and this will take place for 10 generations. This is a long period of time. If you, Perhaps you've never thought about 400 years, but right now as we're uh, experiencing time and space, it's 2015. When did the first people come to this continent from Europe? 1607, in a settling way. There were some visitors occasionally. There, perhaps there's some Vikings, but, but that's not in our, in our view here. This country, as a nation, has only existed for about 200 years, and as a people, has only existed for 400 years. So in the continuity of history, 400 years is a very long time. I don't think any of you have a capacity in your mind for 400 years. It's, it's a time frame. You know, if you think of 400 years from now, we're talking hopefully flying cars by then. We were promised them now, but, <laughs> you know, teleportation, you know, infinitely large databases. It, it'll be a great time to be a programmer 400 years from now. But, but the idea here is that God is promising something that Abraham has almost no capacity to understand or believe. Yet we know plainly that he does believe it. That's going to be contrasted here in a minute with what happens to the Israelites. He's going to bring judgment on a nation. Not only is that nation going to exist for 10 generations, but he will bring judgment upon them at that particular time. Now, that's a, a pretty uh, large bill of, of, uh, to, to fulfill here. God permits his people to be enslaved for 400 years. Now, think about this. You know, when when people uh, 
you know, evangelize. They tell people, you know, God has a great plan for your life. God tells Abraham, know for certain that your children will be slaves for 400 years. That's a great promise, right? We claim every verse. We claim every promise. Amen. And so this is a terrible situation. If you said this to a person living today, they would accuse you of being anti-Semitic. You would be a racist. You would be a hater. This is a promise that isn't exactly that great to hear, if you're thinking about it from your perspective naturally. Your children are going to be slaves for 400 years. That doesn't sound very enticing. And this is actually a great evil. God permits this, and he says it's going to come to pass, and he himself wants it to come to pass. So how do we deal with this question of the problem of evil? Well, we all we need to understand is there must be some morally sufficient reason why why God permits this to be. And understanding that, we begin to see some of the ways by which we uh, dissect covenant events to understand the purpose behind them. There is a plan why God is doing this. God wishes to humble all the nations who have gone after other gods by crushing the mightiest nation among them, Egypt. And he does this in order to deliver them from their idols. That is, by the crushing of Egypt, God wishes to make Israel into this perfect, wonderful gem. Like the backdrop of a gem, if you've ever gone to purchase a diamond or a ruby or a sapphire, it's always set on felt or uh, black felt, especially, or red felt sometimes, if it, if it calls for that. The, the idea is God wishes to create a backing for a great display of his authority and power. He permits his people to go into this slavery, this dark and terrible thing, in order to do something which would shine and be apparent to all. The reason Israel is a, is our, a, uh, a group of slaves is to demonstrate that they had nothing to do with their deliverance. They were severely outnumbered. If you think of military strategy, you always choose not only the armies, but also the location. They're in a land where the other people already know the lay of the land. They are outnumbered. They lack sufficient weaponry. Remember, the chariots of Egypt exist, and Israel barely even has some, sh- some swords. And then finally, no one in Israel has military training such that they would be able to achieve a battle or to win any sort of war. And so this is God's demonstration. These people have no capacity in themselves to deliver themselves, but rather he's going to do something great. The battles that Yahweh fights against Egypt are done with weapons that only God can wield. And if you remember the story, as we're about to see here in a little glimpse, he uses things like frogs and flies and hail and fire from heaven. He turns water into blood. These are cosmic level weapons. I don't know about you, none of the superhero movies ever really appeal to me because they're not doing this stuff. They're, they got some like blasters out of their hands, which is cool, but it's not turning water to blood. And this is cosmic level warfare that Yahweh is doing against Egypt, the type of warfare which will spread throughout all of the, that area, antiquity, if you will, all the Mediterranean and the Middle East combined. This fame that Yahweh will gain for himself will be such that all of Israel will be understood to be a protected people by a God who truly is God. All the other nations will understand our God has never done anything like this. It's never been told of us that our God fought for us, but Israel, we don't want to mess with her. 
this fame is going to spread. And that's exactly what happens. If you read the book of Joshua chapter two, when the spies come to Rahab's house, she says to them, we know for certain that all the land is yours and all the people in the land melt like wax before you. What happens? The Bible says that when Yahweh comes, the mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, because Rahab knows for sure Yahweh is fighting with Israel. This isn't a mere victory done with swords and chariots. This is a victory wrought from heaven. And so this is God's intended purpose, that Israel would be established in a time and a place as as a context for the sending of Jesus Christ. He wishes to create this backing by which all the nations would see Israel and that her righteousness would shine such that she would be the right place at in the right place at the right time for the culmination of all things for the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now that does come to pass even though what God had wished to be a diamond surely turns out to be a lump of coal, but the context is clear. God is doing something to gather all eyes upon Israel, and this is why he permits them to go into slavery. A morally sufficient reason for her troubles. And so Already knowing the end of the story, we see what Yahweh is beginning to do with Moses. He says to Moses in Exodus 6, verse 1, The Lord says, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for a strong hand he will drive them out. So remember that uh, the reason Israel is here, the reason Israel has come down to Egypt, is because God caused a great famine to exist over all the land. And Joseph, who was established as the second in command underneath Pharaoh at the time, knew by God that there was a famine coming. He interpreted a dream that Pharaoh had, and so he he began to store up grain. And this famine that God causes to come on all the earth allows Egypt to rise as the economic power uh, at, at the time. Israel comes down to Egypt, they begin to live in Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and eventually, Exodus records that a pharaoh arises who did not know Joshua, and and had no regard to, to Jacob or any of the uh, Joshua's brothers. And so the Egyptians begin to enforce slavery upon these people. That's the context for what's happening. And the pharaohs, over and over again, for 400 years, began to adopt this idea, well, the, the people of Israel are ours, and they are our servants, and, and we get to tell them what to do. And so here, Yahweh is saying to Moses, Pharaoh, the one who wants to keep these people, is going to be the one to drive them out. He's going to send them away. Even though God is bringing them out, Pharaoh's hand will be moved to drive them out. He will want them to leave. Now, this is amazing. Proverbs tells us that the heart of the king is like hand in or is like water in the hand of the Lord. Have you ever held a cup of water in your hand or, or you know, cupped your hands together to hold some water? What, what do you do with water? You can just do whatever you want with it, right? You can throw it anywhere you want and it just goes. There's no resistance that water in your hand provides against wherever you'd like to send it. Yahweh is telling Moses that he's going to cause Pharaoh, who wants to keep Israel, to actually be the one to drive them out. This is amazing. God's deliverance of his people is accomplished in this story without precondition. Now, in verse 5, it does say that Yahweh remembered his covenant when the people groaned, when the people prayed to him, but their deliverance was not earned. It wasn't something that they were able to achieve on their own and do in such a way as to uh, perform themselves or, or earn or merit. It's rather done because of God's promise and God's decree. God is choosing to deliver them before they've been given the law. 
This is not a group of holy people. This is not a group of people who are morally sufficient or better than the Egyptians. In any estimation of the accounts after the fact, it's actually pretty clear that these people were all really rebellious and stubborn, and that's why they go through a death in the wilderness, but that's outside the context here. The point is that Yahweh declares to save his people beforehand and during these events without regard to what they're doing, without regard to their moral superiority. And so Israel has not earned God's action. Verse 6, say therefore to the people of the Israel, I am the Lord. When God declares salvation to his people, he begins with a revelation of himself. When he says, I am Yahweh, he's describing the the type of God, the creator, the self-existent one, and he gives that uh, the heading, if you will, on the declaration of freedom as the, the reason for the freedom. He says, I am the Lord, therefore... I'm doing this for you. Not, you are pretty cool, therefore. He says, I am the Lord, and this is the reason he's going to do something. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God is causing them to become a people. He's going to create an identity. That identity is going to be those who the Lord has delivered. That's going to be their identity. Not we who have struggled for freedom on our own, who have uh, achieved a victory on our own, we who fought for our freedom. That's not their identity. Their identity is those who serve Yahweh, the one who delivered them from Egypt. This is going to be their national identity. True faith, as it's seen in Abraham, is to believe in God's promise before seeing it to come come to pass, right? The scripture says that, that faith which is seen, or things that come to pass, that's not really faith, right? You don't have to have any faith to believe in something that you already have. If you told me that, John, you're going to get a Jetta one day, well, I have I have a Jetta. I don't need any faith for that, the things which I have, right? It's That's a self-evident you know, proposition, that you don't need faith to believe in something that you've already acquired. And these people who live in slavery, in verse 5, are groaning. It says in verse 5, moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel. So these people are groaning for freedom, and yet they're slaves, and they have no capacity for this understanding of freedom. This amazing deliverance that God promises cannot be proclaimed and believed by man's ears alone, without the opening up of our ears by God himself. Verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. That Whenever you see the word thus, it just means according to that stuff which was said before. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now, think about this for a second. Verse 5 says that they're, they're groaning as a people. It's, this isn't just one or two private prayer devotional times. The people are groaning to the Lord under the weight of this slavery. They're wanting this. They're praying for it. They're asking for it. And yet, when Moses comes and declares it to them, they have no capacity to believe it. Why? Because of their broken spirit and the harsh slavery. They can't believe the announcement of what God's going to do because it's too good to be true. Many of us think all we have to do is share the good news with unbelievers and they'll come to come to faith. Not so, brothers and sisters. If they do not have the Holy Spirit of God moving upon them, 
they cannot believe. Think about it for a second. After 400 years, 10 generations of living in slavery, they have no capacity to understand what, what God says when he says to them, I'm going to bring you into freedom. We've heard of stories, of, perhaps of our grandparents who have lived through the depression or hard times. Many of us have never really known any significant and severe financial lack. Occasionally, there will be a situation where a family is very poor and poor enough to have to ask for food, etc. But these people think, you know, you've heard of wars, you perhaps haven't been to a war, but you you don't really have any capacity to understand an experiential nature of American slavery that happened in the Civil War, because it's beyond the view of anyone you've even met. Now think about this for a second. We've only existed for a few hundred years, and we have very little capacity to understand events that have happened within this last century. But these people have been living in slavery for 400 years, which means that not even their grandparents had grandparents who weren't slaves. No one they've ever met who's a Hebrew understands or has any capacity to think what it might be like to be free. This is what it means when they weren't able to believe because of their harsh slavery and the broken spirit which accords with that slavery. They inwardly knew something wasn't right and groaned for deliverance, but when it comes, when it's announced, they don't believe it at all. That's, that's astounding to me. It's amazing. Understanding Israel's slavery in Egypt to be a metaphor for sin which enslaves every man, we see all the more the need for God's Holy Spirit to move upon the proclamation of the gospel. It's unable to be believed by the natural-minded man because they have no capacity to understand the terms. They have no capacity to understand the nature and the realities which are being spoken of when we say there's freedom in Jesus Christ. In all of our preaching and witnessing, if the Holy Spirit does not move, it is all for nothing. That is why you who you... A group of people, all of you, and, and individually some of you who are preparing to go uh, and share the gospel either at the campus or in your job with your family, you must ask for God's Holy Spirit to move on those who you're witnessing to. Because it's not enough for you to proclaim freedom because these people are slaves to sin. We're going to see how saying that is not being mean to them, but rather saying that is helpful for us to understand the severity and the importance of beginning to share our faith. After a steady series of victories against Egypt, Yahweh is ready to bring Israel out completely. We've mentioned them before. There's 10 plagues. A few of them are sending massive numbers of frogs. I like a frog or two occasionally, but not massive numbers of frogs. I don't like any flies. Um, He sends massive numbers of gnats and flies, such that it creates a cloud. And there's all these wonderful plagues, which God does, And it's finally time. Pharaoh has been beaten down enough that God is ready to bring Israel out. And so Pharaoh finally has had enough at the last plague, which is the death of the firstborn. Pharaoh finally says, get them out of here. We want them gone. And so Pharaoh, who's been hardening his heart against Yahweh, is ready to send them out. And God decides to defeat Pharaoh and deliver Israel in the very same act. That's very important to understand. Exodus 14, 27 through 28, not part of our reading, but still part of the book of Exodus. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. Now, remember, this is Moses standing on the banks of the sea, and he holds out his hands, and he parts the sea. It moves from one place to the other. 
And then a little summary description is in the next verse. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. This is amazing. Uh, Moses is standing on the, on the banks and he's holding out his hand. And then he removes that and brings down the waters. You may remember Samson. What happens to Samson? He's captive and he's uh, blinded by the Philistines and he puts his hand between two pillars and he pushes the pillars down to bring the house upon him and all the servants of Dagon, destroying all of the house. Moses does this exact same thing. He pulls his hands back and the sea falls onto uh, Pharaoh. Verse 29, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall on their right hand and on their left. Now, before we move on tangentially, I think that this speaks we're going to see how this speaks about baptism, but I think it's very important to just notice the subtle reference here that that the walls of the waters were a guard. They were like as walls to their right hand and to their left. What is the, the command given to Joshua at the beginning of Joshua uh, chapter one? Do not turn from the right or the left. This book of the law shall not be uh, departing from your mouth. It will be like a wall. It'll be a guard. What happens to the Ninevites who have no moral authority, have no moral capacity to reason? They lose the ability to distinguish their right hand from their left hand. These very same waters which deliver them create for Israel boundaries to the right and to the left. And so this same act by which God is delivering Israel, he also is punishing and bringing judgment on Pharaoh. Moses, of course, prefigures Christ in that Christ stretches out his arms on the cross to perform the salvific act. And by salvific act, I mean the act by which we are saved. This exact same thing is prefigured here in this story. And in so doing, Jesus Christ destroys all the power of the evil one. The very same act that accomplished your salvation was also the defeat of death, uh, Satan, and the grave. And so Jesus Christ here is dying for your sins, but according to the book of Colossians, he also is triumphing over the rulers of this age, little are rulers of this age. And so this is a prefiguring of baptism. The people of Israel leave Egypt by passing through the waters. Now, according to this passage, they don't get wet, but that's not the point. The point is it's a metaphor, it's a symbol, it's a, it's a shadow of baptism. The people leave Egypt by going through waters. These very same waters, which part to deliver them, are the same instrument of destruction of their enemies of Israel. God uses the exact same waters. This is why in most baptismal services that the church has done throughout the ages, the, the person being baptized renounces Satan and renounce all of Satan's schemes, works, etc. Because you cannot cross over to the other side and remain in Egypt. By the same waters, a separation is made from the enemies of God and those who are his people. None of the people of Israel were caught in the sea when Moses brought his hands down and caused the waters to come on Pharaoh. And of course, Moses then attributes the victory to God, that God has thrown the the horse and its rider, that's speaking of a chariot, by the way, the horse and his rider into the sea. If God's salvation of Israel was not total, completely destroying Egypt, uh, or rather if it was, then how much more should we put our hope and faith in Christ? Surely Moses is not the basis of our faith, although he is one of the stones, he's not the cornerstone. 
this narrative, this story, which God designed to speak forth of Christ to, to preach the gospel beforehand, is surely an amazing story. But if we see the glory of God in this, how much more should we not see the glory of God in what Christ Jesus has done for us? So many Christians continue to struggle under this condemnation that that they think, oh, well, now that I've been saved, I should really be matching up to, or I should really be, uh, you know, I should have really overcome this by now. Well, that's true. But it's not true that you should have done it in your own effort. And it's not true that God does not have grace for you. It's also not true that God is not done with you. But at the same time, you need to reorient the way that you think about your current struggles. Yes, there is grace for you now, but one of the means of grace is that you would rethink the way you even approach your struggles. And this is really what baptism speaks towards. Considering how those who hope in Christ are to live, the Apostle Paul tells us not only what has happened, he declares what took place, but he also tells us how to think about ourselves. Those who are following after Christ, those who've already died and been joined with Christ, he then declares how they're to think. Let's look at what he says about what's happened. Romans 6, 3 through 4, do you not know that all who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Baptized means brought into. And so what he's saying is those who have been baptized into Christ, he's talking about water baptism, bringing someone into Christ unites them with the death that Christ had. And so he then begins to make some inferences from this. If God has done this through baptism, then he's also doing something else. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. This is amazing. This is a holy mystery. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the purpose of your baptism. That's the purpose of your discipling, is to walk in newness of life. And yet you're so concerned with this one tiny sin, and yet God sees all of your sin and has grace for it, but he wishes to bring you out completely, and you must begin to reorient how you think about your ongoing struggle and war against those things which entangle. As the parting of the sea ended Israel's identity as slaves, the waters of baptism join us to the death of Christ. When you uh, get married, if you have been married or are going to get married, some of you are very hopeful. Um, good luck. Um, if, you, if, you, if you get married, you are married as long as the other person is alive. But what happens at the death? The death ends the marriage. Because at the death, all identity is taken away. All covenant actions are taken away. And so this is our understanding. When, when Israel goes through the water of baptism, they're no longer slaves, but rather they become God's people, right? Their identity has changed. They thought of themselves as slaves for 400 years. They leave Egypt and are now Israel, God's chosen people, the people who God has pulled out of Egypt. The waters of baptism join us to the death of Christ, and this isn't done so that we would be able to check some sort of theological mark. It's done for a purpose. It's done to lead somewhere. God's doing this in order for us to go somewhere. Romans 6, verses 6 and 11. Now, by quoting verses 6 and 11, I'm not saying that 7 through 10 aren't important. I'm just saying that they're summary. They're, they're like bookends, if you've ever 
seen a bookshelf with bookends. Perhaps you've seen those. It's basically two capstones on a set of ideas. Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified. Look at all the past tense. We know that something's already taken place, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, Paul here is helping the metaphor become clear. Those who are slaves are slaves to sin. They're captive to obey sin and its lusts. And so Paul here is saying that the baptism which with you enter into Christ is done for a purpose. This very purpose is explained in verse 11. So you also must consider. Paul is telling you how to think. And if you don't repent about the way that you are thinking about your sin, you are violating God's law. It is not permissible for you to think, well, oh, I'm just going to always have this problem. I'm just always going to struggle against this. Paul says you must consider yourself dead to sin. Now, a great point of clarity here is brought when you ask yourself, "Has you have you ever seen a dead person do anything? No. If you have, you've been watching some very weird movies or or doing something very weird and you need to repent and uh, renounce the occult or something like that. Dead people don't do anything. They don't do anything at all. And Paul is saying, you must consider yourself. You must think about your life such that you are dead to sin, that this is not your hope. This is not your destiny. You're not supposed to be captive to sin anymore. You've been set free from your slavery to sin. And so this is what Paul says is the Christian walk. It is to begin to think concerning our lives such as we are. Now, this is, again, this isn't positive thinking. Remember verse 6, he says, we know that we were baptized in order that the old man, the old self, might be crucified, might be done away with. And then he begins to say, you must consider that uh, how you think about your life is stepping into accord with what's, ha- what's happened. This isn't some sort of like positive thinking or manipulation of events. This is reality. You have been delivered from sin. Through the death of our old self, and it was total and complete, there has also been a resurrection. And this is not mere poetry. In fact, I would say that all of life, God has set up in order to communicate to us in a very experiential way, a reality which is more real than even natural death. And that is that we have died and we've been united with Christ. But brothers and sisters, Christ did not stay in the grave. He was raised. You're not just dead to sin. You are alive. You're not just stopping sin. In fact, one of the great ways to tell if you're going to continually lose the battle on the sins which you're so trying to overcome is the way that you think about it. If you don't consider them to be done, but also if your constant thought is just, let's get rid of all the bad stuff in my life, and you're never giving thought to what good you can do for others, for your brothers and sisters, or the great things that God is beginning to put into your life, then you're already losing the battle. You're not just trying to get rid of the bad stuff. That's not the point of the Christian life. You are alive. Through what God has done, we have real and true freedom. This isn't some external freedom. Many people see this passage and say, well, God's you know, doing this terrible thing to the Israelites. No, brothers and sisters, there is a much more oppressive slavery than slavery of the physical body, and that is slavery of the soul. 
Slavery to sin is total. It means that you can't do anything but. And yet, Jesus has come to set you free from that. This is not some external freedom that is just temporary, that is somewhat uh, tangential to your life, but it's true freedom. It's real freedom at the heart level. This is true freedom. This is finally real humanity. That's what Jesus Christ begins to bring into your life. We are not enslaved to sin. You're finally free. This is true freedom that Jesus Christ brings. It, it is a freedom which comes by being united in his death and being raised and considering yourself as alive to God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. The mighty freedom which we have in your son, Jesus, is more than we could have ever asked or hoped for. And Lord, we are like the Israelites so often that the very thing which we ask for, when you begin to give it to us, we're unable to believe it. And yet, Lord, we know that you wish for us to trust in you, to place our hope in you. Lord, we know through the example of the patriarchs and the prophets that real faith believes, real love hopes and believes. Lord, we ask that you would give us this sort of faith, knowing that this faith doesn't come from our, ourselves, but rather that it, it's a gift that you give. God, I pray that you would begin to open up our minds to this renewal that the Holy Spirit wishes to bring about that we would subject the ways of our thinking to your word, and that we would recognize that there is only one hope for man, that is a true spiritual freedom, which comes about through being united to the death of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.